Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and on today's program, we have with us Jonathan Lehman. Jonathan is an elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church in suburban Washington, D.C. He's also the editorial director for Nine Marks Ministries, and he's the author of numerous books, including The Surprising Offense of God's Love and How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great to be with you again, Jared. Yeah, it it uh, as we were talking before the program. It it felt like we 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 surprised you. Was that <laughs> we we took you back? We're not an important enough program to uh, to be on your mind night and day. <laughs> it has nothing to do with your importance. It has to do with my administrative. Uh, a lack of skill. So I, I tell Jared, I, I, I failed to put it on my calendar. And he's like, calls up, you ready to go? <laughs> ready to go with what? <laughs> well, I texted you. you have the keys? I don't have the keys. Who's driving? Let me tell you about my morning, brother. Like, Where'd I, you go? <laughs> so I, I knew, like, uh-huh. we, we, we had this at 8, and I dropped my girls off a little late for school, and I am just burning down the highway thinking, Jonathan's going to be so upset if I don't call him right at 8 o'clock. <laughs> And I even skipped I coffee. I normally stop for Starbucks. I thought, no, I don't have time. I can't stop for coffee. So when I get into the studio and we call, and I texted you, I said, we're running just a couple minutes late. And I was so nervous. And then we called you, and you're like, what? <laughs> That's today? Who are you? I appreciate your misplaced confidence, brother. <laughs> well, I appreciate you so much. I just want to I, I honor you. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that it worked out. I'm glad that we could connect. Um, and, uh, yeah, what I want to, um, sort of banter around with you is, uh, based on something I've seen you talk about, uh, mainly on Twitter a few times, but then also kind of, I think it dovetails nicely with the subject of your last book. And as I got to thinking about this, I actually asked you this question because I think that you speak to it pretty well. I asked you this question last year at the Southern Baptist Convention, when we were shooting a series of videos for the For the Church site. And I asked you, I think something like, why does it seem like everyone is so angry? <laughs> um, yeah. What's the deal with everyone being so angry? And, and I think that's all I asked. I didn't try to you know, steer you a particular way. And I liked your answer then. Um, I thought of you for this subject recently, just the subject of division, um, social media, the way it shapes us, um, is it true that people are more angry now, including Christians, in, partic- in particular Christians? Um, I'm not sure. But a few days ago, you tweeted, um, you've done a few series, sort of tweet threads, on on these kinds of subjects, not always the same subject, but the same kind of category of things, speech and the way love you know, should direct our speech, thinking the best of each other, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but uh, three days ago, on May seventh, or, or three days ago from the recording, uh, uh, from this recording, three days ago, um, you did a couple of um, tweets, and I'm just going to read them, and then I want to set you up to to kind of speak to it if you could elaborate further. One was, uh, you said uh, standard way to fight the culture war, and then you listed um, some steps to that. This is the standard way people fight the culture war: treat extreme voices on the other side as representing of all of them. Uh, treat their worst mistakes as characteristic, take quotes out of context and interpret in the worst light, assume guilt by association, and don't ever forgive or forbear. 
Um, and then you responded uh, to that with, here's another way. Engage the best voices on the other side. Extend the same grace to other sides' errors that you extend to your friends. Consider people's backstories, represent in context, and give the benefit of the doubt, affirming any good they are trying to do. Um, let me start a conversation by asking you this, brother. It, is the is the problem, in a sense, overstated? Is it is this just a social media problem, or is there something about sort of what's going on on Twitter and I suppose Facebook and what have you that's representative of something else going on in the church? Well, I think there's yeah, I think there's several things going on. It, it kind of when you ask me that question, like uh, a year or whatever that was ago, I was thinking about kind of the larger political cultural landscape, and I think I said something to the effect of you have, you have different tribes animated by different views of justice, and it's in, it's in response to injustice that we get angry, right? Anger is a right appropriate is is a is, a, is an appropriate response to injustice. So I see a child being abused, I should be angry. Right? It is the right emotion for that occasion. But when you have different tribes of people with different views of justice, they just get angry at each other. So that's the larger landscape. But exacerbating that is, is the nature of, I would say, social media as a communication tool. Yeah. It, it, it allows people to, social media allows people to state their opinions publicly without an editor, without a a degree without a any set of filters allows anybody to get on and say whatever they want, and it allows you to say things. And here's another crucial point: without context. So, when, if I'm speaking to you personally, or even people listening to this interview, they can hear my tone of voice, right? But there's that context. Yeah. Man, Jonathan was really angry when he said that. Or Jonathan was actually kind of winsome when he said that. You, you can just tell by my tone of voice, right? Whereas a tweet, there's no tone of voice. A Facebook post, there's no body language. It's it's context-less. And so that leads to easy misunderstanding, easy suspicion. And so, yeah, in social media, you see the amplification, the amplifying of this, this anger because the tool is just not suited to substantive conversations. And it's like gas on the flame, in a way. Yeah. Now, I, am, I, am I getting yeah. at your question, brother? I, I think so, yeah, and, and and I agree with that. But I do think there are some where there's really no misunderstanding. Um, certainly, I think we could probably misunderstand uh, certain arguments or, um, you know, even certain people's perspectives on different issues, whether it's social justice or other things. But I, I'm, I want to speak to really the the people that we don't misunderstand. They are very clearly... Um, I mean, I guess for lack of a better word, insulting or ridiculing or troll, you know. Yeah, I, yep, yep, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's no like, you know, there's not, what, oh, I wonder what, what tone, <laughs> I wonder what tone he's calling this person a heretic. Yet. You know, that sort of, I don't think. No. That, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I, got, I got it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean. It, and you're I, right. That is what I'm getting in this, this, those two tweets of mine that you just read. Yeah. That is what I'm getting at, what you're describing now. Yeah, and and where do you? I mean, do you think that's new? I suppose, or is it just that social media kind of democratizes our ability to communicate, and therefore these folks we've always had with us, and they're just um, more visible now because of the mediums available to them. Yes, the latter. I, I think okay. people have always argued in this way. I mean, people have always mischaracterized their opponents. 
I mean, Genesis 3, did, did God really say, what was that? That was a mischaracterization, right? Yeah. Um, for, for God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like, so there's a mischaracterization going on. And so, there's, so throughout history, there's, there's always, there's always a, the tendency to want to win the argument by mischaracterizing what the other person is say, saying, to dehumanize the, the other side and put it in the worst possible light, and not assume God's common grace, not assume that they must be saying something good, and I'm going to try to listen for what they're saying that's good. Okay, what, what social media does is it just provides another platform where we can all see one another's mischaracterizations. And what, what, what animated those two tweets, brother, in particular, I, I put it blandly as a standard way to fight the culture war. Honestly, I was thinking about Christians. Yeah. Because I, I see a lot of Christians doing this on social media to each other. Not just Christians, but Christians to each other. I see Christians mischaracterizing, taking things out of context, assuming the worst to each other on Twitter and in blogs. And that's just little videos that pop up. Now, mm -hmm. I've been at the receiving end of some of that, which is probably partly what's called my attention to these things. But I've seen, I saw it this morning, uh, I saw a, a, a woman on social media this morning characterized in this little 90-second video, that, and, I, and I watched it, and sure enough, it grabbed like single sentences that she said in different venues, and it characterized them in a certain way. And I just thought, that's horrible. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I, I don't even necessarily agree with this particular woman. It's just like, no, that's, that's, that's not the way you do it, friends. That's, that's just unkind. It's more heat than light. And uh, th th there, there's, another way, there's another way to characterize everything I'm, I'm seeing. And I'd, I'd be curious to know if you've seen the same thing, Jerry, but what I'm seeing is, is a lot of willingness to bring heat and not much light. Is that what you see? Is that what you're seeing? Y yes, and I, I'm, I'm having trouble sort of disentangling. It feels like there's a knot or a um, just a sort of convergence of threads of, of, of division um, that join together in this sort of tangled knot. And it's uh, th to some extent theological, it's political, it's cultural, um, it's different perspectives on different things, and they all just sort of weave their way together. And I, I know that we've always had um, trolls, and even as as far back as there's been social media, right? So even before Twitter, and and you know when it was just blogs or what have you, um, you know there are always you know trolls out there, and you know you just sure. sort of you just sort of you know live with them and, and and what have you. But it feels like the kind of um, trollish behavior <clears throat> has expanded. Um, just you know just yesterday, I was you know looked at an exchange. Uh, Nathan Bingham, who's one of the you know editorial director at at, at Ligonier. Um, was responding to someone else and just, you know, observing his, you know, his observation was that he felt like um, there's been an increase in the kind of um, irritable voices. So it's not simply that now, you know, the irritable folks have a platform. It's that there's now more of them and we're starting to see it yeah. in, infect or in, in, uh, maybe I shouldn't use the word infect, but impact um, closer to us, right? So, you know, just in the last year and a half, I've seen, um, you know, men that I thought were friends or considered friends sort of go that way and become people that I didn't know that they were. Or, you know, I was somewhat surprised to see 
the way they carry themselves uh, on social media because that was not my experience of them personally. So it's not as if I yeah, knew that yeah. they were, you know, troll types and thought, oh, man, I hope they never get a hold of Twitter. It was like once they got a hold of Twitter or Facebook, uh, they became like it's like this Jekyll and Hyde or something. Um, and so I don't I, you know, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if you have a perspective on that, if, if there's something about the way social media shapes us and and, uh, you know, affects the way we communicate in ways that we wouldn't outside of it. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's such a good question. Uh, and I see it. I, I, I see it. come Honestly, I see it coming from the right and I see it coming from the left. Yeah. Um, I, I see a lot of use of emotion as, as opposed to just dispassionate, careful, again, hey, here's what I think the text says. Um, and I, I, I see kind of a, a, a willingness to, again, assume the worst. Does, does, is it the fault of social media? I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that. I mean, again, I think social media and, and the contextlessness Okay, let me, let me put it this way. I, I think most of us need a more constrained view of what social media can do. So all of us are proud. All of us naturally are going to, as, as it were, try to prove we're right, right? We're all naturally inherently self-justifying. Um, when I walk into a room, however, with real people, and I'm hearing them, and I'm watching their body language, and I'm listening to them, I'm, I'm going to be, I think, generally, more naturally disposed to see them as human and to see things from their perspective, okay? So I walk into a room, so I'm a complementarian. I walk into a room with a Egalitarian, and I, I listen to him or I listen to her, and I'm like, okay, well, I, now I think your views are wrong, but you're a human being in front of me, and, and I'm, I'm going to be kinder in responding to you, right? And, and even in seeking to understand you and why, why, why you're coming from the perspective you are. Whereas on social media, I don't need to do any of that. Right. I can kind of sit alone in my room and just kind of pound away on my keyboard. And it's easy, as it were, to dehumanize you. Yes. I, I don't, that is to say, I mean, I'm not thinking you're less than human, but I'm just, I'm just not thinking of you as a human. I'm just thinking of you as a voice out there who's saying things I disagree with. And I'm really going to say something back. And, oh, my gosh, I'm really in danger if you keep saying what you're saying. And I come at you. And... That's, that's the danger, and that's why I would recommend the Christians, hey, look, we have, a, we have a much more constrained view of what Twitter, Facebook, a blog even, is capable of accomplishing in terms of correction and, and so forth. Yeah, I, I think... How, how would, but again, I want you to answer your own question, brother. Yeah. So do I you think... see something in the medium that is making it... Why is it getting worse? Why do you feel like it's getting worse? Well... I think the world has gotten smaller in a sense because of all of the you know technological advances, and yet we are more distant from each other. And I think that applies to everything. You know, just you know, you look at the way uh, you know young people growing up um, with sort of texting and and what have you, and this great convenience. It, it it definitely shapes the way we speak. So that's just on a you know bare kind of communication level. So how could it not also um, affect the way that we think about the people that we speak to. It, it's stunting us relationally, and I definitely see. So when you mentioned the dehumanization, um, I I have felt that for a while. This sense of we objectify the people that we are referring to. So they're not a person; they're a platform, or they represent something that mm-hmm. I oppose. 
Um, yeah. You know, Russell okay. Moore is a political operative or, you know, all these sorts of things that um, are ways of objectifying someone. And this, you know, that's sort of what I discovered when I first noticed um, a fairly close friend of mine um, speaking about me in critical ways that he never said to me personally, but did it from his platform, from his social media. And of course I was, you know, personally really hurt by that. But then I, you know, began to look at it and see he's, he's not even treating me like a a person. He's treating me like, you know, uh, the, uh, Jared, the platform or Jared, the brand or, and, and I, it's almost like a, it's like a form of detaching. You can distance yourself by speaking about people that way. And it almost seemed like kind of a bifurcated way of even living your own life. Um, where in person, I, you know, I'd never say this, this is, to you. This was about your whole Tom Brady fandom. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that I could handle. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay. yeah, I just think it's weaving its way into, into real into real life. And, you know, obviously social media is real life in a sense, because there's real people behind those keyboards and, and what have you. Um, and yet it's, yeah, it's revealing ahead, something sorry. about us. I think it's revealing something about our heart. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Two quick stories. Uh, number one, I remember sitting around the elder table at Capitol Baptist back, back when I was there and, uh, a, a tough marriage situation came up and one particular elder, let's call him Joe, not his real name. Joe is just coming down on this couple, like, man, they need to be disciplined, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Mark Dever, the pastor, said, okay, well, we need one elder to go talk to him and spend time with him. And since you seem to have the strongest opinion here, Joe, about (laughs) what needs to be done, why don't you do it? And so Joe went and talked to them, and lo and behold, Joe's perspective changed. It softened. Suddenly he saw these people in context, and he became, as it were, the kind of biggest advocate, right? And he had this mild, meek, loving, gentle compassion towards them. Story one. Story two, um, there was a guy on Twitter who was driving me nuts, and I confess, maybe simply complained to, about him to a colleague. Um, like, what is his deal? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, then me and this individual had a phone call. And this is, a, this, this is somebody who I've known in the past. So this, this is an, old, an old, old friend, as it were, as well. But... I didn't understand why he was doing what he was doing on Twitter. And as I said, I was complaining. Talked to him on the phone, and suddenly my heart warmed to him again. And yeah, I think some of his tweets were still inappropriate, but my heart was a changed one toward him just by talking to him on the phone and being reminded of our friendship and being reminded of our relationship, such that then my comments in response to him were, I think, more appropriately calibrated, right? They, They were more loving towards him. Because the larger context of the relationship and the phone conversation brought all that stuff to bear. Yeah, that's good. Hey, let's take a coffee break now and hear a word from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others. Your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. 
For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Jonathan Lehman. Jonathan is one of the pastors at um, what's the name of your church? <laughs> the Chevrolet Baptist Church. Chevrolet. Yeah. Uh, like so, Beverly, but with a C-H. Yeah. Briefly, is that a church that um, that was planted out of Capitol Hill or an existing church? Yeah, it's a, yeah, that's exactly right. There are about a hundred of us, a hundred of us members at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, living in this little suburb on Maryland side of D.C. named Chevrolet. Okay. And since there was a hundred of us there. And there was no good gospel preaching churches there in Chevrolet. We were like, look, we, we, we need a church here. So, so Capitol Hill Baptist planted us with three elders and a preaching pastor, John Joseph, there in the neighborhood we were living. And that was about a year and a half ago. It was great. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. We've been talking about uh, the use of social media, the way Christians talk to each other. Is it shaped by that, or do are we shaping that um, with our own sort of uh, dysfunction or failure to love and, and so on and so forth. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Um, I want to pick up on um, the way we engage with other believers on issues, whether it's social justice, and it doesn't have to be that subject, but but really almost anything, especially as we sort of do this kind of sparring. So like as we record this, um, it, it's not a new debate, but there's this um, levels of complementarianism conversation going on right now. Um, over just the last couple of days, and you know who's a true complementarian, who isn't? Is this really complementarianism? No, that's really egalitarianism. All these sorts of things. Um, at at what level is some of our failure to communicate well with each other uh, driven by um, an inability to distinguish first order issues from second order issues and all of the nuance in there? Do you just think um, you know we know that there are some people who um, almost every theological view is a first order issue, right? So they're you know they're not doing yeah, kind of you know right. theological triage that sort of thing. Um, you know how much of it is that? It's just sort of this is the fruit of the kind of discipleship we've had, where we think nothing's really all that big a deal, or we think everything's a huge deal. Um, you know, how does that impact the way we have this conversation? Yeah, I think that that's that's a huge thing, but there is. There's a maturity question as well. So I think, you know, Al Mohler's idea of theological triage has been out there in the stream long enough. Most of us, many of us, have, have heard it. First order, you know, essential for salvation. Second order helps protect the gospel, you know, like a doctrine of the church, but it's not necessarily the gospel, so it's important, but it's not essential for salvation. Third order, things we can disagree on, but, you know, say the millennium but we can still fellowship together in the church in spite of that. So I think, I think most of us at this point, at least in you know, the, the circles I run, recognize those three sort of lanes, those three orders of triage. What, what Christian maturity is, however, versus immaturity, is the ability to put that into practice, to have a humble heart, and to recognize that, you know, I, I could be wrong on some of these third order, even second order things. Or even 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 if I'm, I'm convicted, not just that I'm wrong. I, I, you know, I really think I'm right. I can still love you and be charitable and gracious towards you, even though you disagree with me. Um, in this second order matter. Um, so let, let me commend the example, for instance, of, of Ligon Duncan. You know, Ligon Duncan has taken abuse from Mark Dever and myself for for years, uh, especially Mark <laughs> over. <laughs> 
or disagreements on, on baptism. And, you know, Mark even uses, and I think I would too, even use the language of sin about the Pato Baptist view. Now, you, you go up to Ligon, let's suppose Ligon was really mature. I can't believe you're calling me a sinner, you know, for my views on baptism. I'm just thinking, I'm, you know, he, he could respond that way. But he's not, he doesn't. He's a mature man, a godly man, a humble man. And so that means he's like, Mark, Jonathan, I support your views, to, or you, I, I support your ability to, to make an argument from Scripture. I want you to do that. I will encourage you to do that. I commend you guys for doing what you think and saying what you think is biblical. In fact, I'd rather have a Baptist who is, who is seeking to be biblical than a, than a Presbyterian who just doesn't even care. Mm-hmm. I've been sure godly response um, in light of theological triage. And a lot of what we see uh, on social media, I think, is what you disagree with me, or you think I'm wrong in this. I'm I'm just hurt. I feel harmed by what you're saying. Okay, again, that's bringing more heat than light. Yeah. Right? That's 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 an immature, proud, ungodly response. I I I would propose. Yeah, to to disagreement, you would say. So, just the inability to have a mature yeah, difference of uh, of opinion. Um, what would you say to some, because, uh, you know, there would be some who characterize these things as sin issues, um, whether it's, you know, different views in baptism or, or anything else. Um, and, you know, so they equate a, a disagreement or a difference of opinion on a, a particular view as a sin. I think you're in sin because you believe this thing. Um, doesn't it make sense then that you would be somewhat engaged with someone um in, in a more, um, I guess, urgent manner, perhaps more stern manner, because you want them to repent of their sin. Um, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here, but... Um, and, and then if no, they're, no, 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 that's, that's exactly the right question. Yeah, but if they're not, and then they're not repenting of their sin, um, therefore I'm going to treat them like an unbeliever. Um, so, it, you know, if we can say that things like, um, you know, pedo-baptism... Um, is a sin, you know, why couldn't we say, you know, other differences of opinions like Calvinism, Arminianism, or whatever they are, that to 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 not see the clear biblical teaching on this view is, in fact, to to go against the Word of God and is, in fact, therefore a sin. And so I'm, I'm pleading with you, repent of your sin. And when you do not, I have to treat you like an unbeliever. Um, I think there's a fair amount of that in play. And for a lot of the folks on sort of the, um, you know, the anti-social uh, justice side, well, I don't want to say a lot of the folks. For for some folks, it, it feels like many. Um, this is a gospel issue where those who are pro-social justice are adding to the gospel, and I have no doubt that some do. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, um, you know, those who promote the you know the social gospel or have embraced kind of a liberation theology, you know, those sorts of things. Um, you know there it, there are extremes on both sides and on the spectrum, um, but you know people feel like they're protecting the gospel, and and so how do we how do we disentangle that? How do we know when someone's really adding to the gospel and when they're not? Well, the, 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 gosh, there's a lot a lot of lot of issues in there, uh, and and how I'm going to respond really does to some extent depend on the issue. Okay. Uh, it's one thing if we're talking about baptism versus paedo baptism. Another thing we're talking about complementarianism, egalitarianism. Another thing we're talking about social justice. You know, those, those are kind different kinds of arguments, and they're going to call forth, I think, a different kind of response. Let me just go back to your first point there, brother. But but 
if somebody's in sin, shouldn't that call forth a sense of urgency in me? Well, yes, but always in the context of the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? So even if I think, say, Ligon Duncan is in sin for his view on pedo-baptism or teaching Simon's sin, I think we can still move towards one another with a kind of graciousness and love and charity, right? Again, as a property of the gospel. Well, what if I think somebody's involved in a sin that's leading others astray? Uh, say, complementarian, egalitarian. Yes, again, there can be a kind of urgency there, but uh, again, in the, in, the, in the property of the gospel, or, as a, or rather, in the domain of the gospel. So I, I, I need to do it with charity and grace and so forth. Okay, what if I think the person is actually compromising the gospel? Well, uh, slow down. Why do you think they're compromising the gospel? Is it because they're denying penal substitution? That's one thing. Is it because they believe in reparations for slavery? Or they don't believe in reparations for slavery? Eh, that's a different kind of thing than the denial of PSA. Yeah. Uh, that's, that, that's, that's where I want, I want to have a conversation with you about the difference between biblical principles and policy positions. Uh, which, which I would say follows into the, dom the domain of wisdom, tactics. And you and I can agree on the same biblical principles and yet disagree on political tactics. Right? And I don't think the Bible makes prescriptions quite as clearly on matters of political tactics or strategies. So that, that's why I want to say, okay, you, th you think the other side is compromising the gospel. Okay, you're, you're right to, to care about this urgently, but it may not be as simple as you think it is. And again, that's where we all need to, to I think, slow down, work harder at listening, and, and, and think about some of these things a little more carefully. Um, <clears throat> and again, let me go back to something I said in, before the break. Maybe we need a more constrained view of what Twitter and Facebook is capable of doing. Maybe some of these conversations are better to have in person or in the context of churches, over the phone even. Yeah. Yeah, brother. I mean, I, again, I, I want to hear how you would respond. What would you say to those who are feeling the urgency of, of gospel compromise, which is a real thing, um, and how, how we appropriately respond? You're watching the same conversation as I am. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is sometimes I feel like those who are very concerned about gospel compromise have themselves um, added to the gospel by insisting that someone who believes a particular thing. Um, is now in danger of apostasy, or um, you know that they're in that they're approaching heresy. In which case, you're you know about to anathematize them. In which case, you're demonstrating, um, especially if it's on these sort of second, third order you know type issues. Now you're demonstrating yeah. that that for you, the gospel is you know the satisfaction of Christ, you know the finished work of Christ plus. The correct view on social justice, and I do see that on either side. The correct, the correct view on reparations. Right, that's right, and 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 I see that on either side. Where, um, you know, as you mentioned, there are some who will say, yeah, you know, if you deny, um, you know, social justice or or the, you know, uh, you know, you know, particular facets of it, then you're not embracing the whole gospel. You're denying, you know, the fullness of the yeah. gospel. That's where right. the, and then right. I see it on the other side. If you were you know, saying that the you know gospel has these implications of social justice, or you think social justice is an aspect of 
um, you know, biblical teaching or what have you, you've added to the gospel. And I think maybe they're both right in the sense that they're both adding to the gospel, um, holding up as w- what is authentically Christian is that you not just articulate orthodox, um, you know, the you know tenets of Christianity, uh, but you also agree with my you know view of of these sort of political cultural uh, applications or non applications, um, you know, of these things. And and in in my you know in my opinion, I think this is a result. Um, largely, not entirely, but largely of being discipled by voices, uh, some inside the church, but by voices on, uh, for lack of a better phrase, social media. It's, you know, it's it's talking points yeah. that come out of cable news. It's talking points that come out of uh, different pundits on Twitter, and um, and we just sort of enter these echo chambers, and um, that's what shapes us more now than just sort of the quiet life of. Um, of the church. Um, let me ask you this. Last, as, I was, yeah. as I was, let me say one more point on this. Yeah. I was setting up the conversation I had at Midwestern, Nine Marks, at the TGC with Sam Alberry. I was talking to Mark Dever beforehand, and he, he made a really good point. I, I, you heard me. If you listen to that interview, I said it towards the end, but this was me just ripping off Mark Dever. Uh, he said, you know, Jonathan, I think a lot of people right now think that the main error we're capable of falling into is falling into unfaithfulness, falling into following the culture and not going with the world. And that is a true risk. But there's another risk that we as Christians need to be aware of, and that's the risk of balkanization. That is to say, you know, dividing up into lots of pieces. As you take this perspective on this social justice issue, and I take that perspective on, you know, consequences of complementarian versus thin versus thick complementarian, and then, you know, that person takes this perspective on continuation or not, and then slowly we, we start to balkanize into all of these pieces, right, because we don't have, A, a good understanding of theological triage, and B, um, uh, uh, frankly, maturity, and then I would say, C, a good understanding of Romans 14 and Christian freedom, right, and, and so... Yes, there's the danger of falling into unfaithfulness, but there's also the danger that we need to be more mindful of, of disunity, as we're all insisting on our way in all these little tertiary, secondary and tertiary matters. And I, I think that's a good warning. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me um, wrap up our conversation with this question to you, uh, because you are the, uh, for better or worse, the church discipline guy. <laughs> Is it... <laughs> I love, I love that title. Is, is there a yeah. point at which someone's public behavior on social media and would be grounds for, um, you know, formal church discipline? Certainly grounds for a private remonstration, a yeah. private correction. Uh, and I've, I've done that, you know, a, a brother and some of his tweets and fair, rather Facebook posts. I said, Hey, listen, I, I just think that's unkind and uncharitable. Yeah. And he, he graciously and, and with, you know, humbly pulled them down. Um, so if, if we understand church discipline, not just being the kind of the final step of putting somebody out of the church, but right. all the corrections leading up to that, certainly that. Yeah. For it to be, for it to be, to actually excommunicate somebody from the church, I think it would have to be fairly strident, fairly divisive to the body of Christ, and certainly unrepentant. Yeah. Like, this guy's Facebook post is just hurting the whole groups of people in the Church. We've asked him to stop, and he keeps doing it. And other members of the Church are coming to us and just saying, 
how much pain it's causing them or how much trouble it's causing them or I, I don't know. But, yeah. but, but it's clearly causing demonstrable harm and he refuses to repent of it because he's wise in his own eyes. I've, I've not been in that situation. I can hypothetically imagine that situation. Yeah. So just sort of a, an unwillingness to to listen to counsel or those who, you know, maybe, yeah. uh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, look how, look how urgently Paul responds to divisiveness. Warn a divisive person once, warn the second time, and then have nothing to do with them, yeah. he says, right? So if a person is proving unrepentantly and consistently divisive, to the body of Christ on social media, yes, I, I think that could be grounds for discipline. Yeah. Well, just as a pastoral note for those of you listening, I think that's a good a good application or or, or good uh, direction for you if you're struggling with your use of social media or struggling with what you encounter on there. Um, it, it's just you know stressing you out. <laughs> um, it's making you feel um, angry or hurt. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe it's a good time to kind of take a step back, perhaps reevaluate um, maybe generally just your use of it. Maybe it's time to kind of limit the amount of time you spend on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, what have you. Um, or maybe it's just a time to reevaluate how you use it um, to maybe actively employ um, the different means of limitation and restriction of what voices you give access to your ears, to your eyes. Um, on these on these mediums, along these same lines, um, that if if someone is causing you uh, real harm, stress, um, maybe it's time to have nothing more to do with them or um, to curate your feeds in a particular way. Jonathan Lehman, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Always great to talk to with you. Uh, I was about to say the same thing. I enjoyed the conversation yeah. with you. We've been talking with Jonathan Lehman. He's one of the elders at Chevrolet Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., editorial director for Nine Marks, a great friend of Midwestern Seminary and to For the Church, and he's author of numerous books. Um, most recent, I believe, is How the Nations Rage, and you can pick that up at Amazon or wherever good Christian books are sold. Until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast. Hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church. Found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.